Today on Happenings of Grace, we continue our discussion of confronting injustice without compromising truth by Thaddeus Williams. Previously, we have been discussing one question a month, but now we're going to move to two questions a month. And this discussion centers on questions five and question six. Question five asks, does our vision of social justice embrace divisive propaganda? And question six asks, does our vision of social justice replace love, peace, and patience with suspicion, division, and rage? And now, listen to the discussion on these two questions. We also invite you to join us in person for our next meeting, Friday, February 3rd. All right, so the format will change slightly. We're going to be covering two questions from here on out. Um, so we're on five and six? Sorry. We're on five and six, yeah. So seven and eight next time. Um, and then nine and ten, so we'll dip the last question in Sinister Systems into the, the final section. And then... Um, 11 and 12 will be the last like straight through. And I think if there's continuing interest, we're discussing doing the appendices as well. Cause there's a lot of good information in those. Um, but we are going to do two questions still meeting first Friday of the month. So February 3rd is our next meeting. Um, but yeah, that's what the plan is right now. All right. Let me open us in prayer and then we get started. Father, uh, thank you for uh, bringing us all here. Uh, we pray for those who uh, could not make it, but who intended to, and pray that you continue to bless our discussion. We ask that it would be fruitful, uh, edifying, and also challenging for each one of us, uh, that we would learn to see uh, sin and wickedness in our own hearts, and that so you could clean it out um, for our good, but also for our neighbors. But that we'd also um, <clears throat> stand for the truth that you've revealed in the scriptures, we pray that we would share it uh, lovingly, but boldly, courageously, um, for their benefit as well. Again, we ask that you be with us uh, this evening and uh, bless our conversation tonight. Amen. Amen. So I want to start it off, just keep it open-ended for a second. And uh, in chapter 5, the splintering question, is there anything that stood out to you about the chapter? Well, you can't read this without then, as you hear the news, <laughs> hear examples of a lot of different things coming out, especially uh, what I would point out, I guess, would be the, the groups <laughs> of just people referring to this group as this and this group as this. And boy, is that so common <laughs> in our world today. And then I guess U.S. news, which is what I listen to when I'm not listening to BBC or something else. But um, I hear it particularly in our news cycles. Yeah. I thought about how inured I have become to hearing people being vilified. Mm -hmm. You know, to, it's mm -hmm. it's whether it's the people at the border, whether it's the people down the street, whether it's the people in, um, um, you know, it, it, the present discussion surrounding the election of the Speaker of the House, I've tried to listen to it for criticism of, I, or I tried to listen to it for, to hear criticism of ideas divorced from criticism of a, a, a group, but I'm not hearing that. 
I don't. I can't pick it out. Yeah, that's kind of our uh, ad hominem attack. Sometimes, or they go yeah. after the person instead of the the issue. Yeah, the person or the group of, or the, yeah, the group, group of yeah. people that the person is within, and and that 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 stood out in both of these chapters is the um, the the divorce between um, specifics to broad generalities and painting something with a very broad brush. Mm -hmm. All in the name of truth, of course. Yeah, it's stated very, like, well, you all probably believe this, so I'm just going to state it that way. Mm -hmm. It's just very, yeah, normalized. But I was, I was struck by how inured I have become to to that, mm -hmm. and surely I'm a party to it, or I have been a party to it, probably will be a party to it, but I have a lot to repent over. Well, why do you think that, why do you think we're all prone to like attack a group or a person instead of ideas? Well, it's easier, mm -hmm. because we're lazy. Was it Spanish? Perezozal? Perezozal? Yeah, that's lazy. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also easier to... I think, Tim, you mentioned this a couple uh, weeks ago. I think it is always easier to um, attack than it is to suggest what would fix it instead. So I think it mm. is easier to direct people's aggression towards something that you say is not working instead of focusing on like what you would but like uh, negative news spreads much more quickly than positive news does. And so in the analysis of propaganda, like in the pattern of propaganda that Thaddeus Williams did for this book, um, and that weirdly I walk my students through when we do Animal Farm. That was a fun day when the principal came in. There was Stalin propaganda on the board. <laughs> <laughs> it's for education. Um, but <laughs> but it, it's that this is what is causing the problem. So it's not that I'm going to solve the problem. It's that they are the problem. Right. So there isn't necessarily need to find a, a solution that will work for everyone. There's a need to remove the people you've now classed as the problem. And so I think that's what the narrative is easier to build that way when there's an enemy, right? They are the enemy. They are what's stopping progress. And so therefore we need to get rid of them and then the progress will come. We don't have to worry about building progress now because they're in the way. That's what I saw. In this, in this chapter, it was very, um, when they compared the two like articles, I think is what it was. Mm -hmm. um, that was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> that was something that like is striking. It's like if you just replace the names of the people, it's like, yeah. <laughs> that observation. Other things that sit out in the chapter? And people are celebrated for these observations mm -hmm. within particular circles. People are celebrated for these 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 observations. 
I, I appreciated also his defense of um, when they were saying, oh, it's like Archie being a hypocrite for calling out these individuals. And he, I think he lays out a good argument of, of why it's not. Um, he, he was he was explaining that he's a hypocrite and other things, but in this specific thing, it's not it's not the same thing. Calling out a group of people who are um, who, are, who are using this to you know demonize yeah. um, a particular group. It's calling somebody out isn't necessarily um, uh, singling them out as uh, lesser humans or something like that. You know, and um, I think he laid out a good refutation against that sort of objection. So. Yeah. That's on uh, pages 58 to 59. I think um, it's almost like a thought-stopping device. Like, uh, if you guys are the, the bite model when it comes to, like, cult reprogramming of, like, behavior control, information control, thought control, emotional control, um, it's the like if you then criticize this person then you are buying into that narrative and therefore you can't necessarily criticize ideas without criticizing the person and by criticizing the person you are now doing what you say they're doing and so therefore none of this is real but that is in its own way like kind of a a way to stop people from ever engaging in criticism because if the fear that the hypocrisy charge or the pharisee charge is going to be leveled at you then do you engage with an idea that you know is dangerous or do you or ignore it under the name of, well, I don't want to be called out for calling out. Right. Right. He makes a point about that, about um, how could someone allow it to continue? Yeah. Uh, other thoughts on the, the three steps that he identifies in chapter five for what propaganda goes through. So the revisionist entries, the individuals as group exemplars, and then blaming life's troubles on that damn I think scapegoating <clears throat> elevates, you know, blaming life's troubles on the damnable group, scapegoating. It, it elevates the, the people that listen and agree to that. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it reinforces their position. It elevates them. Um, and in Western society, anyways, if you look at teams, if you look at team building at work, if you look at uh, classroom competitions between holiday decorating, uh, if you look at anything that involves one group of people and another group of people, there's probably some level of competition there. Mm -hmm. And this is Western. And as that level of competition loses its focus on the what we're competing about and becomes we just have to beat them that is when scapegoating becomes um, um, a, just a part of the overall the overall thing and the prevalence of competition in our in our Western culture, anyways, um, reinforces um, the, the desire to beat others. And if I can't beat them with my um, uh, my skill or my talent or my resources or what have you, then I'll run them down with my mouth. <laughs> 
I think also um, pinning the blame and making a scapegoat for your communities or society's um, problems, it takes away personal responsibility from your own group. And it gives you a false sense of self-righteousness, mm-hmm. which in and of itself is also false. But there you have it. You pin the blame on this group and boom, everything's solved. Yeah. I think it's also not necessarily finding like a scapegoat. It's finding a villain. Because if you can make them the bad guy in your story, you therefore, everything that you do becomes the good guy. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you are almost on a righteous quest, even though it is, as Elijah pointed out, self-righteousness largely. That um, what I need to do is, to these people, is necessary because I'm the good guy and they're the bad guy. It's why, you know, horrific things get labeled as things that sound very positive or things that sound as though they're they're solving problems like quite literally it was called the final solution in um hitler's plan to exterminate millions of people that this is this is what we have to do because we're the good guys yeah um did you guys look at the on pages 59 to, to 60, it kind of talks about um, two people who were radicalized. It mentions Christian Picciolini, who was talked about more in the last chapter. He was the person who was de-radicalized from a neo-Nazi group. But it also talks about um, the guy last name Barnes, um, who was radicalized, but on left-leaning ideologies. And so looking at his excerpt from his story on page 59 talking about um, what he was told to believe, why he was depressed and anxious was because of these evil systems and how that did not solve his, like the root causes of his anger, it kept him angry and kept him focusing on um, how these people had ruined the world in his, in like the, the media that he was consuming. Um, and so how it just plays into what Thaddeus William calls the group blame game. Any thoughts on on their two stories? Christian Piccolini versus um, Barnes. No, I like what he points out that top of page 60, the last sentence in the first paragraph, that the far right, far left, are playing exactly the same game. I think the other side is so deplorable for playing. So they're getting mad at each other, but they're doing the same thing, <clears throat> which I think speaks to the commonness of the sin that we all have as expressed, maybe politically, ideologically, slightly different. But in the end, if you analyze the argument uh, behind their arguments or well, <clears throat> complaints that they're really doing the same thing. So yeah. which I find kind of funny, actually, can make a good comedy. Um, I think that comedy has been made. I'm sure. Like yeah. Aaron Sorkin made it. Yeah. That's. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's almost interesting. I wonder if you can deal, I guess you could deal with each side the same way because it's yeah. essentially the same problem. 
And he kind of says, uh, the problem of evil is not just the Christian theologian's problem, it is everyone's problem. Mm -hmm. The unexpected brutality, the unrelenting pain, the seeming absurdity and senselessness of so much suffering are all re are realities we all try to come to terms with somehow. And then he talks about, you know, um, explaining why the world is all mess so messed up the way it is. And yeah. obviously as Christians, we understand that it's because of the fall. Um, but I'm trying to think of um, how do you get to a person who is so tied up in their own language in their own story, how to get them out of their story into the ultimate story that we all truly should be a part of, which, you know, is our salvation. So that was the thought I was thinking of when I was, you know, looking over this. So what do you guys think? How do we get someone out of the story that they're locked in, like Barnes was locked in, into the story that offers true redemption and salvation? If there were easy answers to that, there'd be no need for evangelists. <laughs> Oh. oh, that's a that's a really deep question, um, and I think to move the needle in any way like that takes um, takes the work of the Holy Spirit. It, it also takes a, a realization that, that probably cannot be forced from the outside, um, that, that you are broken, um, that what you're participating in is either a um an, an outflow or recognition or a part of your brokenness um it's also a banquet at which you feed that um uh, that continues to uh, support your brokenness um I don't know, I think in counseling, you try to get someone to come to their own conclusions um, without, I don't know, to, you, do, you do a lot of listening, you get them prompted and do a lot of listening, and then they start to... Well, people, yeah, if they're gonna see things in their own life differently, you know, um, it's their view. Often people come, you know, this person's a problem in my life, this person's a problem, but really the focus is, you know, how do I, how do I view them? How do I view myself? And what can I do? I can't change another person. Right. Right. But I can change how I react to them. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, change is hard. There's been lots and lots written on how people change. But the reality is, it's something from outside yourself. And we know that as the power of, of the Lord and God and in the Holy Spirit. ultimate change. Yeah, in right, right, change. right. A change of thought or belief 
perhaps by being convinced or hearing something a different way, mm-hmm. but to really have a change of heart, that yeah, heart change. So, to answer um, your question, I think we by saying you know how not to do it is expressing clever arguments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. Never convinces anybody. Well, but he doesn't discount the uh, the um, addressing arguments. He doesn't discount that at all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so but, I think yeah. there is a place for argumentation. Yeah, but not 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 trying to say, okay, I'm going to do this formula, and you know, formula? do this, 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 and then that will convince them. You know, it's, right. you know, it doesn't work like that, especially for emotional people. Yeah. <laughs> I think. This is probably doubly hard uh, because of the algorithmic world we live in, where what you listen to or what you watch or what you um, are rested in, it tracks that behavior and will just send you more and sometimes gradually more and more extreme. This is how online radicalism happens. Um, But there's never going to be something that questions the narrative in like the Mm. um, like algorithmic world that we live in. And so... uh, I'm not necessarily saying that like this has happened with any success, but when it comes to thinking like when, when I moved from a very angry atheist to agnostic to uh, where I am now by the grace of God, it was through uh, the Holy spirit ultimately, but it was also through asking questions, which is why, why do you need that to be true? Yeah, but what, why? Why do you need the Bible to have been mistranslated? So let me go back up. What yeah. prompted you to start asking questions? Because a lot of people won't even get that far. Right. I think I've just always right. been obstreperous. Okay, so just I've just always been difficult <laughs> to <laughs> to deal with. Yeah. Um, and so I've always asked questions. But one thing that started or that um stopped answers was uh, when I was twelve. My my mom passed away from uh, cancer, and the church that we were at at the time um, was. Pentecostal light, I would say. And there were a lot of people who were very into like the gifts of the spirit. And uh, there were people at the church, not leadership, but people at the church who said um, in some direct and some roundabout ways that the reason my mom had died was because we did not have enough faith that she would be healed. And so like that immediately stopped me wanting to learn anything more about God, because this is, uh, this is something that hurts people. And so it was through learning more about um, history and uh, as well as like psychology, how the brain works, philosophy, that kept me asking questions. And so trying to figure out like, why do you, why do you need that to be true? Like, why is that your answer for what happened here? Why is there not a better answer somewhere? And so like that has what, that's been how I now talk to students who are in, um, like their own journey with what their spirituality is, is something that is leading towards something that is aberrant. And so as gently as possible, when I can engage, I do, which is why do you need that to be true? What is it about this that makes this what you need to be true? And so I think the direct approach or like the really witty or overly sarcastic approach, more like the, the YouTube or TikTok approach of just being overtly like look at these idiots and it doesn't matter what side you are 
viewing media from that is ultimately what the narrative ends up being like either look at these idiots or look at these evil people Uh um and there is no felt need to engage with people individually and question why you need this to be true i think that's an excellent question why do you need this to be true it's not a it's not an attack question um it's very open-ended it's um, and and you ask that question and and then you start to listen and you'll hear other things that that can still be explored with that same question why do you need that to be true and then as you get someone talking and listening to themselves um perhaps that brings some light on any discussion or some light on any behavior i think the key is if someone is individually searching Mm -hmm. and not just believing what they've heard in the culture or heard in their family Mm -hmm. heard in their circles and that's this story of Shiresh is yeah. is an example okay. of that. And in, I, you know, I was just came back from Nepal, yeah. so I was at the Monkey Temple that they refer to, and all of that. But um, and I've been in India too. And you know, Dalits are confined to villages, um, usually at the end of the road, mm-hmm. right? So they're not living in town; they're separated out, and then their kids aren't you know, transportation, other issues to get education, good jobs, you know, all of that. Um, you know, the one village I was at way up in India was, you know, had uh, you know, one bathroom, one sink, and one shower, you know, for five, four or 500 people. Mm-hmm. So, and um, no road. Um, so it's, you had to carry your propane tank. So think of a double propane tank. That, that would be about two to three miles to carry that in. So anyway, so yeah, the discrimination is vast. What he brings out here is that, you know, he met a, an American and this is, you know, part of Americans traveling, just the example of, you know, saying hi to anybody, talking, all of that. And then also expats in churches in Nepal, uh, the more expats there are in a community, the less likely there is to be discrimination and a- adherence to the caste system. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously there's still churches that are struggling with those attitudes because that's, that's so much part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And the newspaper, if you're looking for, they still have these, you know, looking for a husband and wife, it's still separated by Brahmin. Mm-hmm. A Dalit wouldn't put an ad in, but, but it's separated out by the other castes. Um, so the only thing to, to break through of that is a Christian who is an example of accepting someone and of treating someone well, right? And, and the church leadership not, not going along with the culture and saying, well, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And we visited about three different churches when we were there and, and we, you know, we saw that, um, Unfortunately, you know, just because of income and location and things like that, it's hard to have integrated churches 
um, because of poverty, transportation. So, yeah. So it takes an hour and a half to to drive at 12 miles in Kathmandu. Mm. So if you live on the edge of the city, it's going to be hard for you to get in to a, a church that's in the city, right? Yeah. Things like that. But anyway, it's a fun story to, to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think like the implied tragedy is that there's there's no way to stop being a Dalit. And then mm-hmm. um, the lack of resources is going to be used as continued justification to keep separate. Because, well, they live like this because they're dirty or because they're lesser. And so therefore we shouldn't do anything. And so these are situations that are kept poor because of that, that the it, the cycle just continues because the terrible circumstances are then used as justification for the circumstances right, right. to continue. Yeah. 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 The mission groups that have had empowerment projects like teaching women to sew and men to do crafts and projects and trades has been a big help, but there's still you know, a huge cultural yeah. divide so you know so yeah it's, it's... Well, they do point out here those beliefs come from hindu theology yeah okay and so but they become cultural and so the christian church in nepal and india should dismiss it but it's Anyway, it's become a culture. Our culture has to look for those things too, where the church takes on yeah. cultural beliefs and plays them out. Well, the church did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. But present day, we right, have to be yeah. watchful of that as well. Well, of course, that goes back to the, uh, the fundamental question is, you know, what I think you. We're kind of alluding to it earlier you know it's it's you know why i think you said why do you need this to be true mm-hmm. another way of saying that is you know what's your standard you know if, if it's what you were taught or raised with you know it's it's not really going to get you very far because that might not be true yeah so it's what is truth mm-hmm. so like that question implies that that person you're talking to even believes in truth so I, I I talk to sometimes people who I work with. I mentioned you know it's not about it's not about. Um, I said something to the effect it's it's not about whether or not it's what you believe it's what is true. And they sort of looked at me and like no that's not it. <laughs> like like you know it's you. So that I think I like the. The, the, the question, but, you know, we live in a culture that they they cast away the proper definition of truth. And um, I think in churches um, who sort of integrate the culture into the church, it's like, okay, um, what is truth? Do you think it's Star Wars' fault? Because only a Sith deals in absolutes? Are you absolutely sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was like, yeah. isn't that an absolute statement? No, I isn't think then um, George Lucas get a lot of his ideas from um, yeah, Pan-Anthism. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of Hindu ideas come from and Buddhist ideas. You know, so yeah, it's it's 
I don't think that's the root cause of it. No, he got it from something. Being sarcastic, but yeah, but yeah. Um, good. Yeah, I, I, so like getting, I think getting people to come to an understanding of the gospel is getting to that heart issue. Um, what do you believe is truth? Yeah, if you don't even recognize scripture. It's true. If you don't even recognize truth in general, you know, it's, it's that's a warped understanding of reality to begin with. So yeah. that's what I said originally. It's it's not about a clever argument. It's it's about getting to what um, Scripture says and having someone just read the Scripture, you know, just giving them the Scripture and say, read this. That's I think that's more important than um, having some weird formula that's, you know. Yeah. If I can just, I forget what, I, th I think it was um, some pastor in California said something to the effect, if I can control, if I can find someone's like heart emotion or something like that, I can convert, <laughs> I can convert any soul. <laughs> it's like, if I can get to that one thing that is in them, you know, Turn I can convert off. them. Hmm? Turn that guy off. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I heard, him. it was yeah. an illustration that I heard. Him. So Ali's question though, why, say it again. Why do you need that to be? That's heard? an emotional question. Mm -hmm. That's not an intellectual question. And so, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the journey you just briefly shared was actually dealing with an emotional question because of the pastor, whatever, said you didn't have enough faith and that mm -hmm. made you angry. Yeah. Yeah. So, the read the reasonable arguments inform emotions. But I think the problem in our culture is no one wants to have reasonable arguments. They just yeah. want to go, think, go off by their emotions. Yeah. And even if they are have some sort of sense of rational, coherent argument or they're engaging in debate, once they realize they're up a, a wall that starts to be uncomfortable, they'll immediately go to the emotion mm -hmm. and then they start to attack the group, yeah. the individual. And so arguments aren't going to win anyone into the kingdom, but without them, mm -hmm. right, you could be stuck in emotion because you have no standard with which to judge your emotions by. So it's, I think it's, I wouldn't dis c completely discard argumentation, but right. no, you're talking about clever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying like having, having an argument that you think is going to manipulate someone's emotions. Um, I don't, I don't think probably people around us may have that particular problem, but that's what people try to do in evangelism is they try to tug out people's heartstrings to get them. And by, um, I, I don't think it's a like cookie cutter sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. No. I think it's also just because of the the algorithmic world that we live in. Oftentimes, whenever people put together well versed arguments and like clever things that are based on intellectualism, the people that watch it are people who already agree. And so it doesn't it does not root them out at all. I'm very much in favor of apologetics and argumentation and discernment. But I think because we are already so polarized, the people who need to see it won't see it. You will just see a bunch of comments about how people need to see it, but there are already people who agree. Maybe, but then you just gave the, I think, the greater problem, comments. Yeah. They're online. They're yeah. keyboard warriors. They don't have to deal with anyone face-to-face. -face. No. Yeah. Like, talk, talking, I mean, I've, I've done it before. <laughs> <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> being in person, I won't say a word, because I'm like, yeah, you know? So, you know, the internet, the the lack of face-to-face -face, like yeah it contributes contributes to, it, yeah, yeah contributes to it as well so yeah. we talked about paulette murphy was the one who made the point of like mm. when she tries to see who that person is when she reads a comment online 
like she tries to imagine saying it to their face because it helps her with the cognitive dissonance of that's not a real person. It's a comment. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, uh, the, uh, electing the, the speaker of the house. I've been listening to the, to the hearings and you get this one faction yelling to a group of room and then you get the other guy yelling. It's, it kind of reminds me of what we do online. We argue, but like you get those people together to actually have like a sit down and talk about the issues. They're not going to want to do that. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's that, it's that sort of thing because it's, you know, there's cameras yeah. all over them. Yeah. They're all actors. They're all yeah. like playing their little right. part. But you know, it's like, it's what we do when but we go online. And we that's try. why the deals that happen, they happen off camera. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't see that stuff going on. Right. Yeah. That's the, uh, I think that's just that's just that's how people behave online. Yeah, it's a performance. They're hoping yeah. to make the news cycle. Yeah. There can be some great clip. Well, there's no consequence really. No, I just. I mean, off. there are for other people, but not for these people. Yeah, yeah I could just turn my computer off or go away. Or... Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're supposed to end around eight thirty, right? We are. What All time right. is it? So yeah. So oh, any on. last thoughts about the first question? I want to leave enough time for the second question too? Yeah. <clears throat> No. All right. I'll move on to chapter six. <laughs> the fruit question. Oh, that is right. <laughs> Does our vision of social justice replace love, peace, and patience with suspicion, division, and rage? The two questions are kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the one leads to the other. Y- yeah. I found myself enraged at bell hooks. Yeah. At bell hooks. Mm-hmm. And and I and I thought about William's comment about how how bell hooks essay was read in so many um, sociology and women's studies and uh, um, English classes in the uh, in academia, uh, whereas Corey Ten Boom's um, experience probably never would be. I was late tonight because I was watching uh, my son's um, graduation. Um, from Trinity University in uh, in Washington D.C., um, a master's of science in nursing, and uh, it's a Catholic university, mm-hmm. and the principal speaker of the night <clears throat> spoke greatly about social justice, and spoke greatly to the assembled students, um, bachelor's and master's degree students. Um, from School of Counseling and School of Nursing and talked about, um, you know, their future um, as social justice warriors, as people who, um, you know, would be facing problems in societal problems in racism and feminism and... um, disinformation and as she continued on 
I was, I started thinking, what channel am I watching? Because there are certain channel, channels well, in news programs that will say many of the same things that she said. And I was waiting to hear her say something. This is a Catholic university. I was waiting to hear her say something about seeing others as created in the image of our creator and treating them as you would want to be treated yourself. And I never heard that. I didn't hear any of that. I heard a lot of, I heard a lot of social justice talk, but I never heard her cycle it back around um, to what Christ said. And I was quite surprised. Well, I wasn't really quite surprised. I was saddened more than I was surprised. Yeah, I, um, the trauma work that I do is through a Catholic university. And, and according to my Catholic colleagues that I went on a trip with this summer, they said there's really only three um, graduate school, Catholic graduate schools that are holding to any kind of orthodoxy. Mm. And so all of these students have switched from other Catholic institutions to Divine Mercy here in, in Washington, D.C. area. So that's not surprising then that mm -hmm. our Catholic brothers and sisters would be struggling with some of the same things. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that's unfortunate that but that is disturbing. And, you know, I'm old enough, and maybe David too, where I still remember Corey Ten Boom going around the country speaking. Uh, and, you know, she's, her story is real, and her heart is just so real for the Lord. And, you know, anyway, so much the opposite of Hook's mm. diatribe. Mm -hmm. They're stark. Yeah, they they're, the page they're just. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that the social justice narrative is really integrated itself into the church because the Western church has been slowly moving away from the standard of the scriptures. And once you do that, you lose any standard of right living, which leaves room for false ideologies to come in and corrupt your thinking about God and about his people and about the people around you. I think there's a tendency to overcorrect when like wrong has been done, um, when there is a historic record of the fact that we are fallen and that we are sinful there is a desire, I think, in order to prove that you are enlightened or to prove that you are looking ahead to the future, that you are changing and changing for the better, that there's a tendency to overcorrect. So I think that's part of why Thaddeus Williams wrote this book, because there is a call to fight injustice in scripture. But what is actually injustice? And how are we to fight it? And who um, is able to 
show us our need for a savior. And outside of the scriptures, you will not see that narrative sold. Um, and especially when we look at, we were talking about this last time, the slippery slope of the assumed gospel, a lot of mainstream uh, evangelical churches haven't necessarily leaned into the social justice narrative, but are not teaching the gospel, right? If you look at like what some of the largest churches or largest live stream churches, they're Lakewood Church, which is Joel Osteen's. Um, there's Elevation, which is Stephen Furtick, Bethel Church. And none of them are openly social justice, but none of them are teaching the gospel. And so I, it's, again, that day of like overcorrecting. So we don't want to come across as Pharisees. We don't want to come across as legalistic. Therefore, we do not need to have the standard of God's word or because God's word has been misused by people in order to justify horrible atrocities like segregation, like um, genocides then we therefore should not use it. We should steer away and just take the red letters and just use those. Um, because just like, it's almost like when people say that there's a difference between the Old Testament God versus New Testament God. And so we don't want to be Old Testament God, we just want to be New Testament God where it is now all about love. And so therefore we don't have to point out sin or demand um, a standard of holiness we just can focus on love. And so it's that, that tendency to overcorrect. Perhaps if they want a real definition of mercy, they should read the Old Testament. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how Rob Bell simplified the gospel he no longer believes in. Right? He was like, God was angry, then Jesus, and now everything's fine. It's like, that's... Mm, <laughs> What are you reading? That's kind of inco <laughs> that's kind of incomplete. <laughs> but he was the author of Love Wins, and that was mm -hmm. one of the, the major movements of the emergent church. Other thoughts about the, the fruit question? What is love supposed to look like? What are the gifts of the Spirit supposed to produce? Well, I want to go down a different road. Because I was, <clears throat> when I was talking about emotion earlier, and then this um, story about Hook, her killing rage or whatever. Um, it's all emotional. And the truth is defined by uh, experience. So, um, how do you disprove someone's experience? You yeah. can't, really. I mean, you can, but not really, because they're like, you weren't there. Or, how could you ever understand me? And they could. Oh, you think you were there? <laughs> well, we get terms like mansplaining or, or, uh, can't remember all the terms, but the the truth is based upon uh, one's person's experience and not a standard of truth. So I think that's extremely hard to like even engage with someone who's like just wants to walk away anyways. Um, and 
it's almost difficult to be loving that way because you get so frustrated that you're just trying to like you're being ridiculous you can't even talk to them because they don't even want to engage and it's uh i don't know it's just very difficult sometimes and, and i don't know it might depend upon the context and relations you have with the person and just just tell them the gospel and you maybe just plant a seed and hopefully you know someone else will come and sow that um so any thoughts about dealing with people's experiences as their truth I'm just trying to picture myself as the uh, ticket holder who sat down in that first class seat beside her, angry, making sure that I could see what she was writing on her legal pad. Mm. Um, I don't know that I would want to engage in a gospel conversation with her. If you saw that. I would just pray for the flight to. And soon. Yeah, her uh, the writing, her, her writing that on the legal pad is almost the same form of typing it out on the computer, because mm -hmm. no one could really see it. The guy next door couldn't really see it, so it's it's kind of safe in a way, for her in that moment, to my guess, but. If you go around life, you know, because if her attitude is, yeah, I'm getting on a plane, I'm going to the airline today, but I'm probably going to have some somebody treat me badly, something's not going to go well, you know, I'm going to be treated bad as a woman or as a black woman. If that's what you're expecting, it's going to happen, <laughs> right? And and you're going to react then, and 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 you believe you're justified. So. And and if it's if it's a microaggression, if it's a microaggression and you are a barista, then you have this sphere that you influence. If it's a any form of microaggression or um, some kind of aggression that you sense to yourself as an injustice and you have a national platform, then you have a big megaphone to, to, um, to carry that forward. You've talked about algorithm and you've talked about, um, um, uh, you know, seeing, seeing those things you want to see or experiencing those things you want to experience. Um, uh, so much of social media drives and feeds that. Um, when I think of the people, everybody, everybody on the streets got a, a, a camera. Mm -hmm. You know, what a strange world. <clears throat> but everybody's got not only a camera, but a video camera. Um, and when you see, um, you know, any kind of episode, whether it's um, 
uh, you know, the president comes down the stairs or goes up the stairs or what have you. People have got cell phones. Um, somebody is uh, um, struck and collapses on a football field. Everybody's got a cell phone. Um, at the graduation, you know, I'm watching it from a, from, from a controlled camera, but everybody's got cell phones. And so the airlines over the, over the uh, you know, Southwest Airlines, over, mm -hmm. over the Christmas holiday, everybody had cell phones. You know, how many people experienced great troubles during that episode? Were they personal? Were they corporate? Were they... Um, systemic injustices where, you know, our class of people from Phoenix, this is going to happen to us. And so if you go through life looking for trouble, um, then you can, you can find it easily. And then you go back to the earlier chapter with the, um, then you can make your own propaganda up about it and, and, mm -hmm. and get others to feed upon it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can say those white Southwest Airlines people are all this, 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 this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But under pressure and travel, airports, people's character comes out. Right? I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, it yeah. gets exposed. And, yeah. and, you know, I think as Christians, our basic, you know, demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit is how we react yeah. under pressure. And, um, you know, anyway, I just have a picture in my head. We were, and our, our flight out of Richmond was canceled, so we actually drove to Raleigh-Durham to the airport there, and then the lines were crazy, mm -hmm. and we finally got on our, our flight, but our, we, had, we were going to a wedding, so we had two young ladies with us. We got them on their flight. They were supposed to get there ahead of us. We were going to be routed through Arkansas and all over the place to get to Minnesota. We would have got, we missed the rehearsal and all of that. So we get to our gate, and our gate's here, and we got four hours to wait. Right here is a direct flight to Minneapolis, right, which is what we needed. So we just we went over to the to the ticket lady and just said, "Hey, here's our situation. Is there any way you could get us on this plane?" And this guy, who happened to be a different ethnicity, was just hey, we heard him for forty five minutes, giving her such a hard time and everything. Right. And she just said, you wait right there. And so uh, they loaded everybody on and she just does this to us. And she sends us onto the plane. And she made him wait. <laughs> oh, because of his attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And she split up his family on the plane. Oh, that's vindictive. I mean, it was probably justified, but... <laughs> it was. We, we did not endorse this. <laughs> right. But, but people's, people's character comes out, and they, they're going to kind of get the treatment yeah. that they, they... Some of it they oh, bring yeah. on their own head. You stub your toe in the morning and <laughs> kick the dog. And... <laughs> right, right, right. I think to... Dave's point about the constant accessibility of experiences and the different, literally different lenses that they can be filmed through, depending on what caption you add over it, right? Is this a crazy Karen or is this, you know, something 
else mm-hmm. from the, from the different perspective. Like we're both filming the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that like that need that we feel for comeuppance yeah. that the people who have done wrong need or deserve mm-hmm. like bad they, things. They deserve justice. Right. <laughs> exactly. And we, we never, exactly. We never stop to consider that we need it as well. Like, yeah, and, I mean, this is a more flippant uh, like topic to then segue back to Corey Ten Boom. But just like the, the agony that she felt that if she could not shake this man's hand, which she did not need to shake this man's hand, this man played a role in killing her sister, played a role in a horrific system, and gleefully participated in this. But if she could not shake his hand, then what did that say about her? Right? When we are, when we are taught to pray, right, forgive us as we forgive others. And so when you recognize your role in evil, which is what we talked about last month, right, it changes the entire question of how you then treat the people around you. Or it should change the entire question of how you treat the people around you. Because if you cannot forgive this person, what does that mean for the forgiveness that you yourself need? And it happens in really small ways. How many times do you go to Walmart and you say hi to the, the cashier and she goes, uh-huh, and she doesn't speak to you and she just does her thing and, you know, and it's it's a not a very pleasant experience, right? So, you know, my choice is to think that I don't know what kind of day she's had. Maybe yeah. she wants to be with her kids. Maybe there's she got some bad news, but she had to come to work anyway. I choose to forgive in that moment. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of other people who say things and do things and write comment cards and all kinds of things, right? I think well, the the Yelpification. I think of that you can rate your experience. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Through your own lens. Yeah. Right. Instead of choosing to in that moment do our best right. <laughs> with God's help. I mean, I think anyone who works customer service, like I worked for Chick-fil-A for six years and like that was, <sighs> it was not, it was not my pleasure. It's, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You're tested, but right. people's patience is tested like, when a person standing in front of me with I can see the steam coming off of their fries and they're yelling at me that their fries are not hot enough and I need to reimburse them. And I'm like, they were eighty cents. <laughs> <laughs> did, you yes, throw, ma'am. did you throw it at them and still say my pleasure? No. <laughs> this is what you fantasize about, and that's a problem because I'm a sinner. So <laughs> that but when we see, I mean, comical or like, but serious, when we see injustice happening, I mean, there's a reason we get angry, right? And yeah. because it's wrong, mm-hmm. this shouldn't happen. And then there's also like, do we continually, when injustices are continually perceived as happening, you then start to see it as uh, David and um, Joshua mentioned, you then start to see it everywhere where it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy so real injustice is occurring but now looking for that injustice everywhere has started to include many other things that may be accidental as purposefully and purposefully cruel um and so that it becomes exhausting yeah like living in that mindset um 
And so I think that's why uh, Michelle Lee Barnwell, her um, testimony um, at the end of it, when she describes her experience growing up um, in a neighborhood full of people who did not look like her. And so just the, ex- the experience that she had growing up where people said cruel things or said things that were, could be interpreted to be cruel. Um, but she talks about what, um, what the Bible calls for when it talks about grace uh, at the bottom of page 71, right? Um, the Bible calls us to the kind of love that is not easily offended. Grace doesn't mean I think terrible words or actions are okay, but it does compel me to remember that I am relating with someone who is imperfect just as I am imperfect. The gospel is based on the truth that we all fall short of God's ideal. If we're going to have truly productive conversations about race and other controversial social justice topics, we have to be willing to give people space to make honest mistakes. She had to see inside of herself. She had to, she had to, she had to see a mirror there. She had gone through life um, with people um, uh, obviously or seeing some obvious physical characteristics that, uh, where was she from, Minnesota? Mm-hmm. Um, but she comes from an Asian-American family. So, yeah. she's, so she's in uh, um, uh, what, what I think... What I think is a pretty white bread world. She said hipping, right? Yeah. So that's a pretty that's a pretty white bread world. Um, and so she's uh, um, an Asian American. There, people are always asking, "Where are you from?" And, and you know, they don't want to hear from, from Main Street. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to hear something else. And then she's with a friend. And she's who who asks us questions, and I'm sure that she's appalled mm-hmm. because she, she has heard she has heard this, been on the receiving end of this question with whatever intentions were were focused toward her, um, and then her friend asks this person who has obvious characteristics that are different from her from the person says, "Where are you from?" And this guy just lights up because someone shows some interest in him or he takes that question as someone showing some interest in him um and he just lights up and then michelle sees this as oh this is a different way of of looking at this and i kind of as i was reading that i was thinking of how am i like that uh, because there, there are some people that I'm around who ask questions uh, of others. And I think, why did you ask that? <laughs> why did you? Why you ask that? Let's just move on. Um, um, and sometimes the reaction is um, I just just the joy of being communicated with. Uh, maybe that Walmart cashier. Maybe sometimes they just need the, you know, the brief joy as long as you don't interrupt their, their role. It's not a quota, but it, their, their production, their production quota. I mean, I think it's a tragedy of the human experience that it's, it's almost like Pavlovian conditioning where like experiencing injustice leads to anticipating injustice. 
Yeah. Because the yeah. the behavior has been felt and experienced yeah. so often that it becomes a conditioned response. Yeah. And so then how do you uncondition that? Because it takes time and mental effort because you have been literally programmed to anticipate this. Then therefore this reaction is going to come because of that. Yeah. So reading the Bible is a, um, provides me often with a, with a mirror. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, the author talked about Bell Hooks's uh, um, essay that there was no self-reflection in it. There was no, there was no mirror, um, and I think that I think that the gospel um, has has convinced me of my brokenness mm -hmm. and knowing that I need a mirror. And it can't be a mirror of my own making. It has to be an external mirror. Yeah, it's not one that's going to show you what you want to see. It's one that's going to show you what's there. Right. Right. And the glass has to be true. Mm -hmm. you know, or, or I'm going to have a distorted view of what I see. You going to say something, Judge? Huh? <laughs> um, in the question he asked for uh, chapter six is our vision of social justice for place love peace and patience I think on the patience part um, especially in light of um, the ninth commandment not to bear false witness that if people are saying like for example if a woman says I've been abused well we need to take that charge seriously and investigate maybe she's lying maybe she's not and I think um, regard, in regards to patience there, I think we need to be patient if someone's, I mean, there, there's probably obvious times when like you're just being ridiculous, but then other times we're like, okay, maybe this person really is feeling something that's there, it's truly there. And I think it's our job to be uh, patient with them, but also find out as best we can, did this injustice really happen? Instead of just, oh yeah, sure it did, or just writing it off. And I think that to be fair to people, and I, I almost think that people would appreciate that if you take the time to listen to them and try to seek out what actually happened or where are their feelings coming from, if they are truly being oppressed or whatever or not. I think people would appreciate that and see that we care about them. And from there, perhaps we can have a dialogue or discussion about you know, what is really happening in, in their lives or whatever. It's like a half thought, so I just don't know how to articulate it after that. <laughs> I think a premature wrath is not helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, and especially when it says, oh, this individual did this to me. And they're like, oh, let's go to that person and confront him. <laughs> you know, that's it's like um, enraged. And um, especially when something happens in the church, and there's a reason why Matthew 18 exists. You know, and... Um, there's a process by which you know you handle that sort of situation it's um you i don't know i think it's hard to it's because it's not pragmatic to be neutral because it's like you're not validating their experience then it's like what if you're wrong and then you're it's like you defended the aggressor yeah and 
you know, I don't think anybody wants to be in that position, but likewise, you also don't want to condemn an innocent person if, you know, there was a mistake involved or maybe a, a lie was told. So, I don't know. <laughs> I'd hope within the church that if someone feels offended by a comment someone makes or a perceived slight or whatever, that, that they would you know, be willing to bring that out and address it and not, I've heard this, that many people will have an experience like that and they'll just leave that church mm -hmm. and never, ever address it. And then they'll speak badly of the church or, you know, whatever. Then that's not helpful to the body. Um, mm -hmm. But I would guess that, you know, if someone felt a racial slight or gender slight or whatever, that that would be very sensitive and, and difficult. They may yeah. come to leadership first to try to yeah. help figure out how to bring that out. Well, I think it would be our duty as leaders in whatever capacity to say, hey, if I messed up, please let me know. You know, come to me and let's work this out. Mm -hmm. And I think we should be open about that before anything ever happens. And hopefully that would be impetus for people to say, hey, but I would say most people don't really like confrontation. It's just kind of easier just to meh. <laughs> so that's the hard work, I think. Is, um, you know, and, and then letting grace work in our lives, saying, okay, this is going to be difficult. Like even if, if you're the offender or have been offended either way, this is going to be difficult. But how's God, how can God work in this for our benefit and for the benefit of others? And just like with people who may offend outside the church, like someone who's actually been oppressed and we just kind of ignore it. Mm -hmm. Well, we should be open to saying we messed up. How can, how can we make this right? How can we talk this out, work this out? So, and I think far too often we don't even acknowledge, we don't even say that, hey, please let me know when I screwed up. I don't think we even say that. And I think if we did a better job of saying, I'm probably going to mess up because I'm a sinner too. But when I do, please let me know. And how can God's grace work out, work this out? So I think leadership by just how they handle snafus and things that don't go quite right, just the attitude, you know, you just, you know, you, <laughs> you roll with it, you move with it, you know, you're not looking to blame somebody or anything. I think people can pick up that kind of attitude in, in a small way. Yeah. which is good, which is a grace attitude, right? Yeah. yeah. Have humility. Take responsibility for it. Yeah. Your yeah. own actions. If you fail, you fail. You learn something. Mm -hmm. And you learn more on how to actually succeed and be right in the eyes of God. Yeah, I think people have been burned so many times that they just, they don't want, they, they think that if I confront this, nothing's going to happen. You know, they're just going to make an excuse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we can do a better job um, as Christians and then also as individuals of being open um, to criticism and not just pushing people under the rug, you know, mm -hmm. and not being afraid of talking about hard issues. 
you know, because, you know, <laughs> we've all been there where it's like, oh, how was your week? <laughs> it's Sunday morning. It's like, like, it was great. It's like, oh, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, I just yeah. had a big argument, big meltdown the night before. And it's like, I'm putting a smile on my face. Okay. And that's not, that's, you're lying. Right. You're right. And that's. Who is you know, that for? Yeah. That's, is that put to. Put face. Yeah. Right. Why do you feel that you have to constantly be seen as perfect and never having done wrong when we come each week to celebrate the one who righted our wrongs for us because all of us have yeah um and so <clears throat> i i mean the statistics on like the the pressure to look okay mm. and not just in the church but just in like america in general the pressure to be fine yeah. is like really isolating because if you're not fine what do you do then and then if you're not fine for a reason that other people don't see as valid, what do you then do? Like, this is how these cycles persist, where it's not a real problem or it's only a real problem because you're problematic. And so, therefore, you don't deserve our help. It's what justifies the system again. Hmm. Yep. But on the flip side, I think we need to be open to hearing the uncomfortable. Yeah. Because, like, most I'm fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, blah, blah, blah. And you're just, whoa, whoa, I didn't need to hear all that. <laughs> yeah. And so, But then the person then will shut down again because no one wants to listen to them. Right. Yeah. So being open and available to listen to the uncomfortable and uh, what's the, entering into their story that they're struggling with, I think, would. Yeah. That's hard. That's hard. I remember a camper preaching a sermon, I think it was like a year or two ago. And he said, Seth's on to the effect of what if we treat, I, I think he said this pretty sure it was him what if we treat the the church like as a, a place where people can heal like a hospital something to that effect and it's it's like i'm, I'm kind of working through the illustration i'm not going to say he said this because i'm thinking this through <laughs> it's like i'm just going to to expand the illustration a little bit it's like if you um I watched some videos on YouTube of this um, this doctor who's explaining like people consumed a hundred medicine gummy bears. This is what happened to their brain. It's like it, it killed them, you know. Um, but people go to the hospital and they think that they have this particular issue, and it's like I know this caused my illness. And then the doctor examines you and is like, No, actually, it's this. You know, it's it's um, you think it was this food that you ate that caused problem but it's no it's probably your bed or <laughs> something like that like it caused damage to your back and it you know prevent it, whatever i don't know i'm not a doctor but it's like <laughs> um people think that this person did this to me which caused me to do this and it's like no it's probably someone else <laughs> you know and it, it, i don't know i think it, getting to the the root problem of a person's issue is more important than um somebody's what people think they feel like i guess is what i'm trying to say <clears throat> yeah and oftentimes people will just talk about the symptoms yeah yeah instead of the underlying issue that's yeah. what, that's really and that's either one they don't really want to deal with it or two they're not aware of the yeah. underlying issue yeah yeah like you know if i have a cough well maybe i got pneumonia but i'm just dealing with a cough yeah. Because that's what I can see. It's what's easy to address. Yeah. And so that's, I think, when we listen, and I guess with experience, and the more you know the person, I'm sure you mm -hmm. could explain this better, but um, you can then start to identify what are they really addressing, the symptom or the, the, the root cause yeah. of the symptom? Uh, um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Just... Go ahead. 
I was just going to say that pe- people's filters get conditioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so like when it comes to the microaggressions um, or when it comes to people say like, oh, this person said this, the racial thing to me. And therefore, this person's a racist because they said this. It's like they called me Taco Man because I'm Hispanic. Or something they say, you assume I like tacos because I'm Hispanic. It's like, it's well, not. yes, we do. It's like, I do. Don't call me. Don't call someone. It's a bit offensive to call somebody a taco man anyway. It's like they assume you like tacos. It's like, well, you know, a lot of people like tacos. But the, the point is, is, what I'm getting to is like, um, my. I don't want to leave, put names into it, but my um, a relative of mine is a part of a mixed race situation, single mom, dad, whatever. Um, the dad who um, it's not really a dad, but he thinks he is essentially told my relative, you know, uh, you're going to go into this world and you're going to be treated this way because everyone's a racist. And you're going to have to make it through the world. And um, he was told this as a little boy. And that um, we had to sort of help correct that because it's like if you if you go into the world thinking this way, that's, you know, that's it's not right because not everyone's a racist. You know what I'm saying? And uh, but he was essentially told that everyone's a racist. Um, therefore, when this happens to you, you need to fend for yourself. Sort of way. It's like, what do you think that's going to do to somebody? It's like their entire life, they're just going to view the world in that filter. My point is when something bad happens to another individual and they say, this happened to me. Um, and then like, we, that's ridiculous. You know, this happened. It's like, well, we're not considering, you know, they've been taught this. They've been taught how to think this way. And um, I think we can get emotional. We can get angry. We can get frustrated with the individual. We're not, you know, we're not looking at it from their perspective of how they were how they were taught, I guess, is what I'm saying. I don't know. Either taught to overly recognize or taught to overly ignore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you're just being overly sensitive. Right. It's like, okay. Can't you take a joke? Yeah. Right. It's, it's like you're, you know, ultimately, yes, there's personal responsibility. Um, but it's considering, like, people get taught things that are wrong. People are told lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we can do that in the church, though, too. Yeah. yeah. Like, the government passes a, a bad law, and we're like, they're persecuting us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Red Starbucks cups. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah. Like, nah, just not, calm down. Maybe not. <laughs> the receipt said six, $6.66, and it's yeah. like, the <laughs> cashier's attacking me. This is the guy. Satan's behind the corner. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, okay. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's... It's uh, like when all the people burn Pokemon cards in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were one of those. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Your mom was right. <laughs> but to vilify something gives the group something to fight about. Right. It, it unity. what five yeah, was right. about, right? That's right. the thing. So yeah. if we get this out, then all the kids will be normal again. Right, right, right. So yeah. So where does the healing happen? I, th- I think the healing happens when we... Um, I think at the end of the chapter, it talks about the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. um, 
exhibiting the fruit of the spirit isn't anger and wrath. You know, it's it's not correct. Yeah, it's, it's love, joy, right. patience, long suffering. Mm-hmm. So it's like okay, patience is not only for the individual; it's patience is also for the person who's being accused of a atrocity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like where's his justice if um, if it's wrong that he didn't actually do that thing or she? Well, especially the church as a whole should have patient love, joy, yeah. you know, all of that, or understanding, you know, in, in dealing with things in the larger culture. I think and, a more salient point, where does the healing happen? It's at the cross. Yeah. yeah. It's when you recognize your personal need for a savior and when you have other people who recognize that need and the call to community in addition to the personal need for salvation, that that is when... Um, things flourish the way they were designed to. We were designed to be in community, and this community now has a united goal, recognizing their individual need for a savior and the the role that they played in nailing Christ to the cross and what that now means and how they have to live because of that, because of what has been done for them. I think... Uh, Frederick Douglass's essay. Um, oh gosh, I forgot the title. But he wrote not just about his experiences being raised in slavery and illegally being taught how to read. He wrote about his reckoning when it came to confronting his own sin and how the freedom that Christ brought him is what fueled his further march for abolition because of what he recognized his personal need for a savior. He would never be free unless he recognized the role that Christ would play in his life. Yeah, and it's hard to, um, it's hard to accept your own sins and faults when you actually have been the victim Mm -hmm. of oppression. Yeah. Or if you just see yourself as that. So it's very... A lot of people are very closed off to the gospel specifically because they can't see their own faults yeah. and they don't want to accept it. There, we talked about this earlier, but there's an, an automatically ingrained uh, righteousness to the group that is being persecuted. To Victims have a, an immediate state of innocence. Yeah, that's a good point. Everyone has sin, and there was only one person in history who did not yeah. really, truly, fully experienced, you know, injustice in, in one sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a, we were talking about the idea of, of vulnerability and also the <clears throat> lack or, or lack of willingness for self-knowledge. And I don't know why it came to mind, but Genesis 3 uh, because what immediately happened once they were aware of their sin? Try to cover it up. Yeah. And that was not, would never be sufficient. And I think the conversation that um, Adam and Eve have with God in the garden <laughs> is just so insightful. One, the blame shifting, which was part of propaganda, right? It was the woman you gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the serpent. But also the who told you you were naked. Denial. Yeah. But so denial and blame always go along with not taking responsibility. personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. But 
in that same chapter, I just went over this. So uh, in that same chapter, um, you, so they try to cover themselves, but then you see uh, God actually sacrifices right. animal and covers them. Yeah. And I think I was, I was pointing this out to my son is nowhere in there do they ask. No. It's God does it all on his own initiative to cover them, to cover their sin. Yeah. And that's what he continues to do for us. And that's what he did on the mm -hmm. cross. On his own initiative, he came in, suffered for us, you know, was the sacrifice yeah. to, you know, satisfy, you know, his justice and wrath, but also to give us that righteousness, that covering. Yeah. And that's the only, that's the only way. That's really the only way. So I'm going to bring us way back to talk, ask about that experience question. And I think Bodhi Bauckham has a, a term he calls, it's like a form of Gnosticism when experience is your truth because it's your own secret knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your own secret knowledge is the way to be saved or to fix the problems, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he says, it, so it's a different form of Gnosticism, which is a second century heresy. And he says the same, we, the, how they did, how they deal with back then? Well, the gospel. It was public. This is what actually happened. God came into history, suffered for us, and he deal with what we're dealing with today the same way they did deal dealt with it in the second century mm. that god came into this world whether your experiences experience was true that you actually suffered something well christ suffered too far worse than you will ever have or ever will and so he's in hebrews he's that person that we can relate to mm -hmm. right and then on the other hand if if you are exaggerating or just trying to um see the world through a filter or a specific lens well christ is the truth and he can get you out of that and to see what things truly are so that you can see how the world truly is and how you truly are and therefore ultimately the problem can be resolved because now you're resting in the truth so it's uh as, as i like to say in church history the same types of problems come up again and again but they're just repackaged for a different culture, mm -hmm. so that's why that's why I love church history because mm -hmm. to go back and get three Ecclesiastes one nine. Yeah, that's yeah. What has been is what will be. Yeah, it's amazing to see how many times Trinitarian heresies keep on popping up, even mm -hmm. though we've had this discussion fifteen hundred years ago, even more than yeah. that. We well, have documents, but that's exactly what we're supposed to believe. I mean, he pretty much says that, and I think it's in this chapter that. The we, we would think as the human race we would see through the propaganda that happens over and over. Oh and over, yeah, mm -hmm. right. But we really don't because we're not really paying attention to truth. No, we just want to pay attention to what we right. think is true. And a mob back then, we the mob is just different now. Yeah, yeah. the mob it's is still constant. it's still a mob. Oh, he mentioned in the it. I think it's in the preface the madness machine. Just the constant. What do you have to be mad about now? Because mm -hmm. we are inundated. Right. Yeah, yeah it was self destruction, you know, it's like how much propaganda have we succumbed to? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, how, Dave what? made the point earlier how yeah. you're a nerd to it. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's it's like that's that's scary, you know, to, to think about. It's you know, it's like what have we been told and lied to? What how, how are all how are our filters and lenses being tuned to? You know, it's it's like the only way to escape that is scripture. It's what you were saying. Yeah. You know, the gospel. I think there's also that that reticence to admit that you've been fooled. Yeah. And so, if you've been believing something that's false for so long, then 
you need it to be true because if it's not true, what does that say about you? Especially when all you've said has been put online. (laughs) It's been put in videos. Facebook (laughs) And now everyone can like look at what you've said and say, well, you said this and you led people astray. And it's like, (laughs) yikes. All right, so we passed the 8.30 mark. We did, again. <laughs> Any final remarks before we close out? No. Uh, well, I, the one thing that struck out to me is, and I think it's already been said, but uh, question five and six, like living divisively or shape how that if that shapes how you view the world or how people are always going to attack me that's you're living by a negative and that's like extremely exhausting and i think i've said this before in past weeks you know i almost wonder you know when is it going to all collapse in the culture and what are they going to turn to when they realize things of this has collapsed or i can't keep this up and perhaps again there will be an opportunity to minister to people because they've been absolutely broken or they're just too tired to keep being so angry. Hopefully that some people come to a point and then we can show them, you know, love and patience and kindness. So the culture is labeled it a mental health crisis, Hmm. but I think really it's a heart. It's a spiritual crisis that people really don't have anything beyond themselves and beyond those negative views of this person, that person, and even themselves. Mm -hmm. But so, but yes, for the cult, for (laughs) how do we turn that then (laughs) to, you know, that, that really the answer, everybody who comes to me with mental health problems, I know that the thing that would help them the most would be if they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. right? And we can deal with the anxiety and other stuff as well. But but our culture is, is far, far away from seeing it as a spiritual or heart issue. That's a good point. But, but it, yeah. to me, that's where it really lies. Yeah. And people are just very discontent because this world is difficult. So, yeah. And without God, it's, it's, I think, impossible to navigate in a healthy way. Hmm. So, and when people look at themselves and they say, wow, I'm a negative mess, they want to cover that up joke about it and laugh about it and drink and do whatever instead of turn to um really seeking heart change so yeah well that is an excellent way to end (laughs) thank you mark just on the radio yeah just hearing that talking about more and more just it's a mental health crisis a mental health crisis a mental health crisis okay we have to legislate something (laughs) right like the law to fix anything (laughs) the law's never fixed anything (laughs) right Uh, last night in uh in portsmouth um people have more access to medical mental health care now than ever sure and in america is a good thing and, it, and more in America than any other culture. Yeah. Okay, so. Anyway. We'll see this less farming and chopping wood, which was probably a. Those were great things. Carrying yeah. water. Yeah, let's go back. Big thing for anxiety. <laughs> so um, uh, from the 22nd of December until earlier this week in 
Portsmouth, there were eight shootings and six people were killed. Two, two young people were mm. killed. And the, 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 the city is throwing up all over itself as to what is the problem? What is the problem? And it's, you know, it's recreation. We need more recreation. We need um, uh, mental health mm-hmm. support. We need, um, you know, one thing or another. Well, the police department organized a prayer vigil last mm-hmm. night, which I thought was an interesting um uh, an interesting approach, and the and the the police spokesperson. Now I don't know who they prayed to or what they prayed about, um, but the police spoke. <laughs> the idea was nice. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's an interesting yeah, it's it's yeah. an interesting idea uh, because often the solutions are well the solutions have already been in 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 Norfolk they've. Uh, you know, they hired somebody from Camden, New Jersey to come down and they gave $300,000 to do, you know, to implement some program or, you know, to do yeah. some kind of thing with the, but I thought it was interesting that the police spokesperson that I was watching, she was, she was talking about prayer and coming together mm-hmm. as a community in prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. And that, and there's a lot of faith leaders that are involved in some in some different things, but um, no one talks about about sin as being um, the real root of issues. It's you know it's poverty, it's this, it's that, it's systematic racism. It's you know we you put six sixty four right through our neighborhood and divided it. Do you want to pray for us? Just... <laughs> you know, if I pray for us, let's uh, let's look at the prayer at the end of chapter six. Yeah. All right. It's <clears throat> great. Because I think that that could be a uh... um, page seventy-three. Yeah. I think so. <clears throat> yes. Prayer to seek unity over uproar. So let me read. Let me read this. God, you designed us for community, but in our fallen state, we take the good relational drives you gave us, we twist them into tribalism. Help us humbly recognize our shared fallenness in a way that smashes all claims to ethnic, gender, or economic superiority. Help us to see our in Christ identity as infinitely precious so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation can transcend our grievances and embrace one another as brothers and sisters with whom we will enjoy eternity. Help us see through and stand against vicious propaganda that pretends to be justice but rewrites history, treats individuals as group exemplars, and blames all life's problems on different people groups. Replace suspicion and rage inside us with the life-giving fruit of the Spirit. Fill us with the supernatural love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control we need in order to have real unity in your church. Amen. Amen. Amen.